0: Hey there, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. One of the four walls in my childhood bedroom was a map, the whole thing, from floor to ceiling, end to end. It was this big, detailed map, and I used to stare at it for hours. It's probably how I became so interested in the world. And one spot in particular always stood out to me. It was These five countries with strange names that I struggled to sound out that seemed like the middle of the world. And the more I learned about them, I learned that they kind of are the middle of the world, but only really in the same way that the eye is the middle of a storm. I was looking at Central Asia, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, these five countries that aren't quite Russia, you know, the geopolitical focal point of the 20th century, they aren't quite the Middle East, the focal point of the first two decades of the 21st century, and they aren't quite China, the apparent focal point of untold decades to come. But with each passing year, as geopolitical winds swirl around them, Central Asia seems to be getting more and more important. These countries may no longer be in the eye. They might become part of the storm. That's why I wanted to have on Jennifer Brick Murtazashvili. She is the founding director of the Center for Governance and Markets and a professor at the University of Pittsburgh, a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for Peace who has written several renowned books. And best of all, she joins me next. Hi, Jen, thank you so much for joining me.
1: It's great to be here.
0: First question, what is the CKU link?
1: The CKU link is a new railway that will link China to Kyrgyzstan to Uzbekistan. So that's your C, K, and U. And the reason this railway is important is because it provides China a link of trade that bypasses Russia and allows China to export its goods to Europe and vice versa. This railway has been in the works for about 25 years. And there's been a lot of bickering back and forth between Kyrgyzstan especially, who was never sure whether this railway was in their own interest. Financing of the railway has been up in the air. But the uh, railway Got really new impetus after the Russia's invasion of Ukraine in uh, last year, and uh, countries across Central Eurasia have been desperately searching for rail links and commerce links that allow them to bypass Russia. Of course, sanctions are really a really important reason why they want to get around Russia, but secondly, their own geo strategic economic interests. Uh, these countries have been heavily dependent on, sh- on Russia for so many years, especially the former Soviet uh, Central Asian republics. And many of their you know trade links go through Russia. Well, I think that this war has exposed how vulnerable they are. And when you're landlocked countries, as all the Central Asian states are, more routes are better.
0: Projects like this, rail lines linking China to to Europe while bypassing Russia, they've been proposed in the past. Why did they never come together?
1: You know, so uh, this one in particular never came together for internal domestic political reasons. And I think Kyrgyzstan is a really interesting case in point. And I think if we look at what's happened inside of Kyrgyzstan and the opposition to this railroad, we get a good understanding of the limits of Chinese influence. So you think about a small, small country like Kyrgyzstan with a population of about eight million people, seven to eight million people, one of the poorest countries in the region, a country that's very heavily dependent for uh, on China for financing, very heavily dependent on Russia for labor migration. Yet internal domestic political opposition has stopped the construction of this railroad for about 25 years. And what's changed in recent years in, in Central Asia is the uh, two things. Number one, I think the war really helped change political calculations and made this a a much more urgent matter. Because I think the Kyrgyz are saying, okay, we're this pass-through, this railroad is going to cause some environmental damage. Uh, But the other issue is Uzbekistan. So for 25 years, Uzbek after independence, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Uzbeks had a very autarkic foreign policy. And uh, this meant that it was very closed off to its neighbors. It didn't really engage in a lot of this discussion about trade routes and railroads. Uh, It was really trying to develop its internal domestic market. Well, what happened in, in uh, you know about six or seven years ago? The Islam Karimov, who was the long-serving ruler of Uzbekistan, died. He was replaced by uh, President Shavkat Mirzioyev, who took a completely different attitude. And he wanted to increase you know Uzbekistan's economic growth through trade, through partners, and through what he called a multi-vectored foreign policy. Now, a lot of countries in Central Asia also say they have multi-vectored foreign policies. They use this term because they realize they have neighbors and they're landlocked so they have to be really dependent on their neighbors for trade and good relations now when you're a landlocked country and uzbekistan is double landlocked like uzbekistan and Liechtenstein are the two double landlocked countries the only two in the, the world the only two in the world <laughs> so it's one
0: of my favorite uh, geography fun facts <laughs>
1: And and it, it's 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 a fact, but also a source of real consternation for the Uzbeks because they are so dependent, not just on neighbors, but the neighbors' neighbors, to get things in and out. Growing population, economy that's really poised to take off, um, and so the war in Ukraine, I think, really highlighted the vulnerabilities that the Central Asian states have vis-a-vis Russia. And so, the construction of this trade route gives them another option to get things in and out. So, when Uzbekistan changed its own domestic policy and uh you know became much more reform oriented and wanted to look outward and develop trade relations with its neighbors, one of the first questions was Kyrgyzstan and developing this rail line to china and so that was another you know the domestic politics of this has really affected. China's ability to, you know, expand its activities. And so, you know, we have these, uh, you know, especially in the United States, this vision of all these countries being so dependent on China. Yes, there are dependencies, no doubt. And China will loom large um, in, in the relations with Central Asia. But I think what this illustrates is the agency that countries in Central Asia actually have vis a vis their much larger neighbors. So we talk about this great game, and is there a new great game in the region? And I think that's the wrong way to look at this. I think we're seeing a much more confident Central Asia emerge and seeing a lot of countries with a great deal of agency willing to play Russia and China off against one another um, to get things done that is in their interests.
0: An important part of this conversation uh, will be about history, about uh, these five countries and their relationship to Russia. Uh, and, and the caveat, of course, with this conversation is that these five countries are not a federation of states. They are each sovereign countries with a distinct set of interests. So we have to lay that on the table. But they were all once part of the Soviet Union, unlike other Central Asian states like Iran and Afghanistan. So you've lived in Uzbekistan. How do people there remember Soviet times?
1: I think it's very mixed. Um And the longer that we get away from the Soviet period, the memories change. Perceptions change. So I remember when I went to Uzbekistan for the first time in the '90s, um, there was I was expecting to see a lot of animosity between you know the titular group, the Uzbeks, or the Central Asian groups, and ethnic Russians, and I didn't see a lot of this. Um, now Uzbekistan is a little different from Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan had uh, much larger ethnic Russian populations. You know, there are estimates that like 60% of Kazakhstan was ethnic Russian after uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. In Uzbekistan, it was somewhere around 10%. So those dynamics were very different. In Uzbekistan, um, I think there was this desire to sort of rediscover their their legacies, right? Their cultural histories, um, so many narratives about the development of their own society was really dictated by the Soviet Union and they wanted to retell their own story. And we saw a resurgence of you know, language, the use of Uzbek language, for example. But the Soviet Union also, you know, people said it brought education. Uh, people in Uzbekistan would always point to Afghanistan and say, if it weren't for the Russians, we would be like the Afghans. This was a common expression that I heard. But it also came at a cost, right? The counterfactual to that is that, well, you know, if if the Soviet Union hadn't invaded Central Asia, Afghanistan may look very different than it does today and may not be so affected by war and conflict. Um, So the perceptions of Russia, uh, you know, 25 years ago were... Um, I think people had their freedom. They were happy about that, but there was so much uncertainty because these countries, unlike those in the Caucasus, for example, had never been independent before. They didn't know what sovereignty would look like for them, what relations with their neighbors would be. They had to create new ministries and and tell a whole new story. How
0: did that experience, how has that shaped relations with the Russian Federation, you know, since 1991, since the end of the Soviet Union. What what does economic cooperation and population mobility look like between Russia and the region?
1: These countries in the region are have very strong relations with Russia and and I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon. Number one, geography. You know, Kazakhstan and Russia share one of the biggest natural borders in all of the world. So this, this relationship with Russia isn't going away. Um, and the other countries in Central Asia, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan are very dependent upon Russia uh, for remittances through labor migration. So there's estimates like 40, 45% of the Kyrgyz and Tajik economies are dependent on remittances from labor migration through Russia. Uzbekistan has the most labor migrants in Russia, but because it has a larger population, the percentage of its economy that's dependent on the remittances is smaller. So, these relations there's historical ties, linguistic ties. Um, you know, Russian is still widely spoken, although not nearly as much as it used to be in the region. Um, so, those ties will be significant. Uh, but I think there's a great fear of Russia in the region. They understand that Russia is a partner, um, a trade partner, an economic partner, an educational partner. But on the other hand, if you talk to a lot of people in the region, and it's something I'll never forget in the late 90s when I was in Uzbekistan, you know, I had a senior foreign ministry uh, official say that, uh, you know, Americans are so concerned that, Uh, the greatest threat to, you know, us is the Taliban or Al Qaeda. This was in in the 90s, right, when the Taliban was in control of of Afghanistan. And you're so worried about Islamic extremism. But what we really fear, if you look at instability across the post-Soviet space, the greatest threat to our stability comes from Russia,
0: and that's clearly been been borne out.
1: It has been borne out. So, if you look at a lot of the civil conflicts that have taken place, you can see Russia may, you know, has a hand in a lot of them. Um, and I remember what those officials were pointing to at that time was both the civil war in Tajikistan and Nagorno-Karabakh. So there was a great fear of of the instability that Russia can provoke if it doesn't like the direction your country is taking.
0: Right. And Nagorno-Karabakh being the, the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, just to the west. Uh, well, so, so that brings us to the present day when these very real fears that you were hearing about in the 90s come to life. When Russia is waging a war against a former Soviet republic, how did these five countries, and again... They each had different responses. But in sum, how did these five countries as former Soviet republics respond?
1: So much of the response is conditioned by pre-existing geopolitical alignments. So uh, some of the countries in the region were part of the Eurasian Economic Union. And this is Russia's answer to the EU. Some of the countries in the region were part of the CSTO, which is the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which was sort of Russia's response to NATO. And, um, but what was very surprising is that, well, none of the countries actually criticized Russia. Um, I think that's important to recognize. But what they did do is they, for example, Kazakhstan immediately came out after the invasion and said, we do not recognize, um, you know, Russian annexation or the independent uh, republics in the Donbass. Uh, They said that, and they recognized the territorial integrity of Ukraine. And then Kazakhstan began to send humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. Uzbekistan did something uh, quite similar, although not quite as vocal uh, about a month or so later. Uh, But Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan have been a bit more pro-Russian in their uh, response, at least been much more muted in their criticism. And I think at one, at one point last year, President Zelensky actually recalled the Ukrainian ambassador to Kyrgyzstan, for making comments, for, uh, because Kyrgyzstan made comments that he interpreted as being support supporting Russia. Um, one other thing to remember is you know uh, Tajikistan is a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization. There are about ten thousand Russian troops that have been stationed in Tajikistan uh, since the end of the Tajik civil war, which was in the late nineties, and when the U.S. left Afghanistan uh almost 2 years ago now uh these russian troops were supposed to provide a bulwark of defense against you know any possible incursions there actually wasn't an international security vacuum there were 10,000 russian troops well you know these troops have also been keeping uh, you know supporting president rahman who is the president of tajikistan so not only is tajikistan a very small country uh economically very dependent on labor migration to russia deeply entwined in this and the, and the security alliance that it has, and actually has Russian troop stations on its territory. So Tajikistan's reaction is going to be different from the two larger economies, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. And I think that's what we're seeing here is the rise of these two larger states, the larger economies, who are actually asserting much more of their independence uh, from Russia but once again, I don't want to overstate this. They they have strong relations. There's huge investments of Russia in these countries. They're going to be intertwined. That's not going to stop the United States. I know and many from the outside want to look and say, "Okay, now how can the United States, you know, leverage these relationships or help break up these ties?" The United States isn't going to do that. They're too intertwined, and um, we have to make our foreign policy accordingly.
0: So if Russia, you know clearly still uh, an, an integral piece of this puzzle in Central Asia. But if it seems like less of a reliable economic partner, if it seems like less of a reliable security partner, if these states are losing interest, at least the large economies, are losing interest in the CSTO, who are Central Asian countries turning to instead
1: so this is what's, I mean, of course, they're turning to China, um, but they're turning everywhere. And this is what's fascinating to watch over the past year or so, uh, is the real increase in uh, commerce and investment and uh you know trade ties, uh, visits, high level visits. The Iranians are very active. The Turks are very active. The American Secretary Blinken was just in in Central Asia a couple of weeks ago. Um, the Europeans are are much more active now in Central Asia than they were. Uh, you know, for so long, uh, strategies towards Central Asia were really, especially in the United States, were sort of conditioned vis a vis an Afghan strategy, and. Now I'm a little concerned that U.S. strategy towards the region is conditioned on like a, a Ukraine strategy, rather than seeing these countries as as you know independent sovereign. Of course, everybody recognizes they're independent and sovereign, but developing a strategy that actually helps them, um, you know, come into their
0: own. You've spoken about the U.S. Uh, communicating to these countries sort of in the language of democracy promotion, and that just doesn't translate? No, I
1: don't, it hasn't been very effective. Um, and I, actually, I was very involved in democracy promotion work. Of course, a very big believer in democracy, but I was you know, in Uzbekistan working on uh, for USAID. I managed the democracy and governance portfolio in the late 90s and early 2000s. I was actually in Uzbekistan on 9-11 when the US put a military base in Uzbekistan, which was one of the most authoritarian states in the world. And I think that, you know, sort of illustrates the real tensions between you know, instruments of foreign policy that the United States has. Um, we talk a, a big talk. We're having a democracy summit in the United States this week. President Biden's holding this summit of democracies, but we're deeply engaged with you know authoritarian states um, and providing them security assistance. Right. And so I think a lot of the countries in the region see like very mixed messages coming from the US. But what's fascinating right now is that these countries um, are really coming into their own, they are not vassals of Russia or China or the United States, and they're testing out waters between different partners to see where they can find mutual benefit. Now, they're not doing this collectively as a group of five countries. They're doing this all very individually because they all have individual interests. Now, one of the shortcomings of this this sort of probing, like Turkey has taken a real interest. Uh, There's like the Turkic Union. I'm I'm not, I don't have a a lot of confidence that that's really going to go anywhere, but Turkey is really investing heavily in Central Asia right now, um, really trying to promote its own interests. Um, Iran, which had very icy relations with all the Central Asian states High level visits taking place all the time, new agreements being made in the past year, year and a half. So the dynamics in the region are really changing. One of the things that's missing, however, from this equation is that the Central Asian states, unlike a lot of regions in the world, like Southeast Asia, they do not have a regional economic organization. So one of the things that's coming out of the the trauma and the turmoil of the past year is we're seeing Central Asians realize that they have benefits from uniting, uh, coming together, especially economically, and you know testing out some kinds of regional economic cooperation. I wouldn't say integration, uh, but that would you know reducing the cost of trade. When you have so many borders to go through to get something in or out, those tariffs, those uh, trade restrictions. any any kind of barrier to trade really um, makes the cost of living very high in very poor countries.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Best Buy. Best Buy is the number one retailer for consumer electronics. In fact, the podcast you're listening to was edited on a Best Buy computer recorded through a Best Buy microphone, and reviewed using Best Buy headphones. Best Buy works hard every day to enrich the lives of consumers through technology, whether they buy online or in stores. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. So so you mentioned uh, Turkey's interest, you mentioned Iran's interest. We'll consider that the the, the Western interests. Uh, Briefly, I want to talk about the Southern interest because it's just so fascinating. So can you tell us about what Central Asia is looking for in Afghanistan?
1: So this is something I hope your listeners keep an eye on. Um, to me, it's like one of the most fascinating things that, uh, and really kind of unexpected things that we've seen come out of the past two years since the US left Afghanistan. There was a narrative that I saw, especially in the Western media, immediately after the collapse that, okay, the Taliban are taking over Afghanistan. There's going to be this huge surge of refugees running across the northern borders into Central Asia. And this and the, the power vacuum left by the U.S. withdrawal would Change dynamics completely, and make Central Asian states much more vulnerable to Islamic extremism. Now, it's too early to say. I think there's some elements. Now, the refugees never happened. Uh, the The countries maintained, you know, very solid borders, so you didn't see large flows of refugees streaming across those borders. The Central Asians just didn't allow it. But what we've seen is a lot of very creative engagement. From the Central Asian states in Afghanistan. And in particular, I want to highlight Uzbekistan's role, uh, because Uzbekistan has a direct border with Afghanistan. Like Kazakhstan isn't, isn't so involved in the strategy because they're, you know, they're worried about Russia. They're focused on that. But the Uzbeks, as one of these double landlocked countries, really is looking for trade routes. And the most important, they they say, look, we need to go south and access to the Indian Ocean, to India, to Pakistan. That's our future. Yes, of course, the North will always be important, but if we're going to be truly multi-vectored, we need to look north, south, east, west, everywhere, and look at the huge markets that lie to the south. We have energy, we have gas, we have electricity, we have things that we can export that South Asia desperately needs. And so a lot of these big infrastructure projects that the United States actually planned in the, you know, the aughts that never came to fruition. This was actually under Hillary Clinton and the Obama administration actually seem to be coming to life now under the Taliban. Right. So it's actually quite astounding. So the Uzbeks are negotiating with the Taliban uh, railway authority. They're trying to build a railway that goes from Uzbekistan into Pakistan um, and you know, then into India. And what's fascinating about this is Afghanistan had a leader. Uh, his name was Rahman Khan. He ran Afghanistan. He was the king from 1880 to 1901. I remember him. You remember, he was the iron emir. He ruled <laughs> Afghanistan ruthlessly, committed genocide against the Hazaras, and uh, just was a ruthless, ruthless dictator. Fired his enemies out of cannons. And he made a decision when he was ruling You know, 130 years ago. He said, I will not allow railro- railroads in and out of this country because with railroads come invasions. And I do not want Afghanistan to be invaded by a foreign power. Well, it turns out, you know, Afghanistan's been invaded quite a lot since then, the railroad, but he was worried about Russia and uh, the British empire. And so he made a decision that destroyed Afghanistan's economy, which was to completely isolate the Afghan economy from commerce because it didn't have rail lines. And so actually it was the Uzbeks who built a first rail line into Afghanistan about 10 years ago. It's a very short, you know, rail line that goes into Northern Afghanistan near Mazar-e-Sharif going from, you know, Southern Uzbekistan into Afghanistan. They want to build, connect this going from all the way across, you know, North to South in Afghanistan connecting into Pakistan. Now it sounds crazy, right? Like, First of all, the Uzbeks actually don't formally recognize the Taliban. No, no country does recognize the Taliban as a legitimate government. They still call it like the ruling authority or the de facto power. Um, and then, what like in order to build this rail line, you need vast amount of multilateral uh, investment. You know, the international financial ADB. You know, the international financial institutes have to to invest money into this. Well, who's going to do that right now? What the, what the Uzbeks say is, look, there's peace, there's tranquility, uh, you know, relatively speaking, and now is the time to do this. So I think it's very early to say whether or not this will happen very early. We don't know what the Taliban, what's going to be in Afghanistan two or three years from now. But the Central Asians are very gung-ho about promoting this relations.
0: Well So now we've covered every cardinal direction except for one. And it's... Perhaps the most important one, and we've talked a bit about China using Central Asia as a, as a linchpin in its uh, new Silk Road, which was actually announced, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative announced in Uzbekistan in 2013. What else does China want in Central Asia?
1: There's two things. So, uh, you know, when they announced that, it was actually in Kazakhstan where they, where they made the announcement. Oh, right. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> um, we focus on the economic issues a lot. But one of the things we haven't mentioned is East Turkestan or known to us as Xinjiang and uh, the Uyghurs. So in many ways, I mean, we could look at China's strategy towards Central Asia as, you know, pursuing economic development, trade, integration, so forth. But there's another lens we can look at this through, and that is the security lens. You know, China is very insecure about its, uh, you know, Western most... uh, flank, which is which is where the Uyghurs are living. And we know that the genocide has been committed against the Uyghurs. So the, the Chinese are very concerned about Islamic radicalism, Islamic extremism. And in many ways, we could view China's uh, economic uh, investments in Central Asia as a way to potentially appease the Central Asian states or to mollify them and to silence against the treatment of the Uyghurs. Now that's sort of an extreme interpretation. The Central Asian states have had a pretty strong norm since independence that they will not get involved in ethnic issues across their borders. Now, this norm has been very important to sustaining stability in the region because of the way the borders were drawn in Central Asia. So, you know, if you just take um, Tajikistan, for example, there are Tajiks, huge numbers of Tajiks living in Uzbekistan, in Kyrgyzstan. There are borders that are very messily drawn. And so there was sort of a tacit pact among leaders that, okay, I'm the president of Uzbekistan if there's some ethnic Uzbek challenge in Kyrgyzstan, we are not going to get involved. We're going to focus on the people in our own borders, and we are not going to get involved in minority issues involving the titular group in other countries. And so uh, the Uyghurs, there's a large Uyghur population in these five former Soviet republics. You know, like the language, the Uyghur language is very close to Uzbek. The culture is very, very similar. And so the Uyghurs are Central Asian. Very, you know, They are part of that region. Uh, it's just that, that that boundary with China and Central Asia uh, was carved off and separated the Uyghurs. China is very insecure about this issue. And in fact, I would argue its whole policy towards Afghanistan right now is, is really focused on one thing, and that is security. And it is very worried about Islamic extremism. Or, and there are Uyghur fighters in Afghanistan right now. Um, they are very worried about this, and so yes, China wants to invest. They want, you know, global China. They want trade routes. They want Silk Road. But but these investments also give these gives China leverage over Central Asia, quiescence over the issue of the Uyghurs. That they're not saying anything. They're not speaking out. Um, Kazakhstan did, you know, was harboring um, several Uyghur uh, refugees from China and has been sending them back. And it's, there are ethnic Kazakhs, for example, who are in these internment camps. There's a significant Kazakh population inside of China. They are also subject uh, to the same kind of ethnic genocide that we're seeing um, you know, among the Uyghurs. So it's a very, very complicated situation, but to underscore again, China... Cannot just simply do what it wants in Central Asia. That these countries do have agency, and you know the railroad is one way that these, you know, the Kyrgyz. I gave that example in the very beginning of the show of how this little country of Kyrgyzstan has been able to push back against big, big China in the construction of this railroad for about 25 years, um, and Kazakhs were harboring Uyghur activists now. China obviously put enormous pressure on uh, Kazakhstan to uh, not do that anymore. Um, so we see some leverage, but it's a very very fluid situation.
0: There was a visit this week from the the Communist Party chief of Xinjiang, uh, and he met with uh, the Kazakh and Uzbek presidents. So I think that really underscores you know this interest on China's part. And I, I want to come back to the CKU uh, and the idea that we, we started this conversation on that China is, in some ways, uh, using Central Asia to circumvent Russia, both literally and figuratively, and that it's doing so in Russia's traditional backyard. I mean, could that undermine the long-term prospects of the Chinese and Russian no-limits partnership?
1: So, I mean, of course, there's this no limits partnership, but China has the upper hand in this relationship right now. China is just pursuing its own economic, political, and security interests in the region, and so just as China, uh, Russia has a border with Kazakhstan, so does China, and uh, I think that they see that this relationship is very much in their mutual interests. And, you know, for a long time, there was this sort of myth that uh, Russia did the security stuff in Central Asia and China did the economic investment. And there was this division of labor. We're seeing that change quite a lot. I mean, Russia has actually been very active in its own investments in Central Asia. Um, and China has actually increased its role in security. It actually has some uh, small military encampments in Tajikistan because it's very nervous about those <laughs> 10,000 Russian troops. Right? I mentioned that there were 10,000 Russian troops in Tajikistan. Well, if those troops were supposed to be providing security, look at the performance of the Russian military in Ukraine. Right, There's a lot of questions that China has about Russia's military prowess and Russia's ability to stand up, um, to extremist events if they should arise. It's also unclear if those Russian troops are all still there. I've never really seen a clear accounting of what Russian troops are still there. Can Russia still afford to have 10,000 troops stationed on the Tajik border, given you know the expanse of its military campaign in Ukraine? So I don't think that um, you know China is going to pursue its interest. What does a no-limits partnership mean here? I think China clearly has the upper hand in this relationship. Russia is now so dependent on China and the economic sphere that China has built. So I don't see that Central Asia becomes sort of a testing ground for a rivalry, because there's a lot of mutual interest between the two right now.
0: Well, so then last question, Central Asia, is it caught... In the middle of a great power competition, or is it becoming something of a great power itself?
1: Well, I th- I'm not sure it's a great power, although, you know, don't tell that to the leaders in the region. Um, <laughs> but it is, we always see this region through the prism of this great power rivalry. And I just want to ask your listeners to sort of revisit that. And it's hard, you know, I've probably given people a headache today by going through all these countries, names, places, it's hard to keep track of. You know, especially for the United States, which is so far away uh, from this region, and it seems so far and so unknown. But these countries, you know, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan are growing into important economies in and of themselves, um, developing very sophisticated uh, foreign policy strategies, economic strategies, populations, you know, Uzbek, Tajik populations are growing at really quite a fast clip, and that there is agency. There's incredible agency. Now, don't want to overstate it. Every country is constrained. And when you're double landlocked or single landlocked, you are going to be constrained by what your neighbors do. But what we're seeing is the ability of these countries to play Russia and China off against one another to get things that they find uh, advantageous. You know, for example, Russia has President Putin has made more visits to Central Asia than like in the past year than any time uh, since independence. I think 22. 22 like meeting with all the Central Asian leaders, he's very engaged. So obviously he's feeling insecure about these relationships. And they understand that and they understand like how to play things into their own interest. Um, So rather than seeing these states as sort of passive actors in a great game rivalry, we should really pay attention to what they're doing and how they're able to poke their much bigger neighbors to get things that they want. And I think that's a big foreign policy uh, challenge for the United States is to understand where to leverage that. Because as I mentioned before, we sort of touched on it earlier, this idea of like security and democracy promotion isn't really, you know, tickling the fancy of any of the leaders of this region. Um, I mean, they would love the security assistance, no doubt, but um, the democracy promotion, I would argue, hasn't worked very well at all. Um, it's, I think, alienated people. Now, norms and values are an, an important part of U.S. foreign policy, but when they see the U.S. is really unpredictable, um, doing one thing and saying another, um, which is, you know, an, uh, it's just it is a feature, not a bug, of U.S. foreign policy, um, because of the values that the United States has and believes to be important. Um, it's always gonna be a challenge in dealing with uh, authoritarian states. And these are all authoritarian states. Um, that is something that really hasn't changed. And in fact, you know, Kyrgyzstan was once the island of democracy in Central Asia, the Switzerland of the region, but it is really reverted back to an authoritarian norm. And we can have a whole nother conversation about democratic backsliding. But I think that our expectations that these countries would transition into democracies was really quite unfounded. But that, that, is, that is a subject for another conversation.
0: Well, I can't wait to have that conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it.
1: Oh, it's a great pleasure.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll admit, this was one of those episodes, and there will be a lot of them, that I wanted to do for selfish reasons. I mean, this is a region that clearly I find fascinating. I have found fascinating since I was nine years old, and I'm just desperate to learn more about But the truth is, this sort of conversation is exactly why Intrigue was founded. To prove that our big world is a lot smaller than we think. You know, that a drought in East Africa can change Tunisian politics. That a Brazilian election can derail Venezuela's push for democracy. And that a land war in Europe can forever reshape the balance of power in Asia. I know you hear podcast hosts ask all the time for you to support their show, but seriously, the only way we're able to do this is with your help. So if you have a chance, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend to do the same. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Monday.